Hello, listeners. Today's episode is a masterclass for emerging managers and LPs with Georges Sudarkas, who I am lucky enough to be able to call a mentor and dear friend. Throughout his career, Georges has held executive positions at a number of major financial institutions, his first being Morgan Guarantee Trust. After Morgan Guarantee, he joined ING Bank, where he created their M&A department. And from ING, Georges was recruited to build the alternatives practice at Adia the Sovereign Wealth Fund of the United Arab Emirates. George's work as a limited partner set a precedent of best practices for diversifying the wealth of a nation and has in turn helped to shape the modern finance and private assets as we know them today. George. Hi, been, Sean. I have been very much looking forward to doing this with you. You were very interesting and accomplished man and have quite the career in finance. Don't overdo it. <laughs> You're being modest. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us about where you grew up and your early years and what led you to finance. I grew up in a large French city called Lyon. My parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. My mother from Austria and my father from Lithuania. And they met during the dreary period of the Second World War, where as refugees, they essentially were hiding from the Gestapo and the German army. I was born in 1950. Obviously, I don't remember my early years, but I think I grew up happy in a very warm family. My youth was essentially uneventful. I went to school, to primary school, then secondary school, still in Lyon. But very soon, I felt the young man's impatience for discovering the world and I got restless. I left my home and family to study in Paris, but here too, this was a limited world. I really wanted to discover America. America for me was a kind of promised land. I had a fervent liking for American music, pop music, rock, Bob Dylan, Marianne Faithful and a few others of that kind. And listening to that music was kind of opening the doors on uh, another type of freedom. After my university degree, I graduated from a school known as Paris. It's essentially a business school, one of the first in the world. I think it was formed in 1860 by the Paris Chamber of Commerce. Uh, but that wasn't enough in terms of acquisition of business reflexes. I really wanted to, to test the United States. What was it about the allure of the United States and the business culture there? Well, in those days, and I'm talking about the beginning of the 70s, America meant business efficiency, good strategies, international business, and a kind of affinity to anything related to business. France, and part of Europe, was at that time very much countries where state and government owned and directed businesses. State-owned businesses were prominent. Big examples, whether it's the national airlines, car companies, utilities, all were government-owned. And even though they were pretty much run as private businesses, one still felt the impact of and the importance of government policies that essentially superseded good business sense. So under the guise, for instance, of industrial development, strategic interests, national interests, policies were directed at deploying capital into areas which essentially were not performing well. 
And even though I was young and inexperienced, I strongly felt that there was something not quite right. And by contrast, what happened in the United States, where industry giants rationally assessed business opportunities, allocated capital to R&D and technological developments, there was no match. So essentially, I wanted to travel and, and to study and to continue my career in the United States. What happened is I ended up in Canada, where I got a scholarship to study at McGill, MBA, and I really enjoyed it on two or three grounds. First of all, first time I was really far from family, totally independent, living on a very thin scholarship. I couldn't afford a lot of things, but I was happy like this. I took a plane from Paris to New York and I landed JFK during summertime. It was very warm and when I got out of the airport, I took a bus and the windows of the bus were kept open because of the heat. And I could smell the road and the heated mm. pavement. And that smell was pure delight. This was a car civilization. Of course, we had car in Europe, obviously. But this was overtaking every other sentiment. I will never forget that smell. The first thing that I experienced putting a foot in American soil. So from university, what was your first entry point into the business world? I helped a couple of professors at the graduate school carry out research on data banks. In those days, data banks were quite popular in concepts. Where would you store reams of accumulated data? And how would you locate these data banks to serve the wider community? And where would you locate them knowing that the transmission speed was about, what, two kilobits a second? Right. <laughs> so I, I, I conducted uh, research on that field and I created an algorithm to more efficiently locate those data banks. But very interesting. And that gave me my first insight into technology and the California Caltech universe of thought leadership and technological leadership. And it's interesting, in my simulations, I was doing pencil and paper, and I was thinking of something similar to SuperCalc or the Microsoft worksheet. I was always captured Activated by technology and what technology could bring to the world. I was hired by something called Quebec Industrial Development Corporation. This government body was tasked with enhancing, of course, industrial development, but also imports of technologies. Did you specifically target technology in business? <laughs> Look, I probably was more interested in technology. Yeah. The, uh, the government entity would do all sorts of industries. It can be food, chemistry, chemicals, whatever. But I was lucky enough, my first assignment was in technology and in a sense, the deep end of it. So I jumped from punch cards to silicon wafers. And the next step actually was far more mundane. I joined Arthur Anderson, who is a, who was then an accounting and consulting firm of fame, which went bankrupt and disappeared back in the Enron debacle. Mm. I think the Enron debacle or the WorldCom debacle, one or the other, where they certified account and they mm -hmm. were caught in the maelstrom. So Arthur Anderson, I was with Arthur for two or three years 
I was essentially across management consulting, which essentially was systems design, computer system design and implementation. And the other side of the across is audit. So the combination of both was quite interesting because it offered me a rather deep understanding of what constitutes business systems and also the accounts and how accounts do reflect business processes and business results. And so these experiences bring you through the mid-70s. And how did you make your way from technology audit into finance? After Arthur Anderson, I felt I wanted to go back to the old countries. And I sought to return to Paris. And as it happens, I was hired by Morgan Guarantee Trust of New York, the bank. I was hired on the basis of my Arthur Anderson training to essentially do systems work within the bank. So no front end, no customer relations, no back end, but the liaison between front end and back end, and in terms of computer systems. And there were a couple of very interesting things which I did. It was participating in what was called the Global Exposure System, GES, which was a very innovative system that would consolidate risk by currency, by country, by corporation. And you have to realize that Morgan Guarantee has branches in major cities in the world, and each branch was doing its own business. That was the first attempt to consolidate risk data. That became very useful in the years following due to the various other crises that occurred. This was a groundbreaking effort. And the other thing is a system for analyzing profitability of banking operations. And I was involved in that as well. And essentially it was refining the analytics. And this is where my prior training in accounting and systems design was useful because the bank was still operating with punch cards. And I was trying to help my bankers colleagues because they told me we would like to know what this client does typically at which time of the month so that we can propose perhaps a product which is more akin to their needs. I said okay so I client by client I coded the transaction so I did it sort of on the side and I gave the listing of those transactions to the bankers and said my god this is fantastic we can, we can now be useful to our clients but bank management didn't like this to do a little program on the side which was not vetted that was my hacking experience it was in a sense innovative useful definitely but bank management didn't like that it was sort of unchecked this is what draws a lot of people into startups from corporates embracing new ideas embracing better ways of doing things it's not unique to startups but it's certainly more prevalent and creating systems to encourage your people to contribute their best ideas instead of going elsewhere it's very powerful for growing and scaling a business i can believe that fully yes Yes. My own experience tells me that, right. first of all, but I can certainly feel it and have noted that many times. To, to create the right incentive uh, systems for people to be creative for the organization in an entrepreneurial way is really key to many organizations. Yeah, that's true. Then after that, I joined a law firm, actually, which was whose sister company, they, account, they were both an accounting firm and a sister company was 
law firm. I worked for the law firm. And the accounting firm became one of the founding partner, the French founding partner of KPMG. So from there you went to ING Bank, where I created the Merchant Acquisitions Department. How big was the bank at the time? Oh, quite big. In the Netherlands, it was quite big. Then it merged, ING merged with an insurance company, Nasdaq London. So it became a bank assurance giant. The most interesting thing here is the Dutch are very good traders. They are totally unique. It was culturally very foreign to me because I'm not a merchant. I'm not a trader. I try to be a thoughtful person, but I'm systematic. But the Dutch are really traders. So it was a culture that was very foreign to me, but it didn't last long. I met with one of the architects of the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, and I met this person and we had a very quick meeting of mind. And he told me, look, we are interested in private assets and this This was back into 96, 97, so relatively early in the private equity industry development. He said, we are interested in private assets. We are global investors, and we think that private assets would help us get exposure where the stock markets are too thin to provide us with the right level of exposure. The order flow is too thin in the stock market, right? Yeah. By the way, I'm not sure whether that thesis was the right one, but I was attracted by essentially the focus on private assets for, on two grounds. First of all, with my long time serving businesses in France, which were essentially small uh, small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, unlisted. For me, this was part of my world, so I was attracted by it. And the second thing is there would be a very large pool of money behind this initiative. And how large was Adi at this time? And yeah, that time was probably 350, $400 billion. Back in 97, this was significant. This was probably one of the largest pools of capital on earth. No question. And this was essentially money accumulated from oil revenues, which were kept to face shortfalls from revenues in the future. And that was due to the wisdom of the then ruler and the founder of the United Arab Emirates. So I said, this is very interesting. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Absolutely. I'm in. I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. I come home and I tell this to my wife. And she said, "Want it's okay. So the person I was having this conversation with phoned me a little bit after and said, okay, George, are you ready? I said, yes. But I didn't ask, where is the job located? In Abu Dhabi, naturally. In Abu Dhabi? You're not serious. You can't do that from Abu Dhabi. You can do it from New York. You can do it from London. But from Abu Dhabi, that's outright impossible. George, this is where the job is. <laughs> this is where the assignment is. We have just one office, nowhere else. So my next task was to talk it over with my wife. And she said, well, if you want to do it, but, but can you show me where on the map this is? We looked on a sort of notebook. We looked. It was really quite far. It's not that quite far. It's less far than, say, India. But it was a place that very few people knew about in those days. So finally, I call up my friend at Adia, tell him, yes, Okay, I'm coming. So I prepared a few luggage. I left my wife, Kate, taking care of the things before she would join me. I arrive in Abu Dhabi and I discover a small city, Abu Dhabi, the Emirate, which is part of the seven emirates of the United Arab Emirates. It's called Abu Dhabi, like the capital itself, Abu Dhabi. And Abu Dhabi was then a set of buildings separated by sand. So yes, in some cases you would have some passageways 
But most of the time you would walk on sand to go from one building to the next with your city shoes. The Emiratis, the locals, would have sandals, so no issue when you have socks and shoes. It's slightly different. But it was very warm, sunny. There's no rain, so wonderful weather. But not much infrastructure yet. In those days, literally not much. There were buildings devoted to small businesses, to telecom and utilities, a few hotels, and Adya. This was one of the rare buildings with any kind of substance, with, what, uh, 13th or 14th floor. But it was fun. It was fun because, in a sense, these were pioneering days. This was the frontier. Yes, it was the frontier. And as we discussed, for me, this was epiphany because I, by contrast with many similar situations, I was fortunate to be given the chance to create something from scratch. An organization from scratch, a portfolio from scratch, a reputation from scratch, and a search for excellence from scratch. And that was very fulfilling. It was like match made in heaven. So you get there, it's this amazing opportunity, but there's not much to start with. How did you go about assembling your team? I took the decision to essentially hire from existing staff within Adia. So help people grow to help them grow and to give them a chance. And by design, I wanted to have a majority of people from the place and to create a nucleus of people who would want the stability and keep the memory of the organization within, as opposed to hiring foreigners. I would hire foreigners as compliments when I felt that their talent would add to the team and would help the Emiratis also grow up and learn new stuff. But I wanted to keep a majority of Emiratis. I felt this was necessary. And some days I would invite the executive director of Adia to come to our floor to see these studious heads learning, talking, exchanging, because it was such a satisfaction to see this excitement, this desire to learn. And you've got to imagine, in those days, most communication was made through telephone or faxes. There was no internet, email. I would say it wasn't that easy because obviously there was not the preparedness and the level of education, economic awareness, business education, that would allow a smooth transition to the job of being a private equity analyst or portfolio managers. But they got it. Little by little, I trained the team to arduously read the legal material, understand principal terms, try to assess chances of success of this or that manager. And I would essentially push the young team to travel. Rather than traveling myself, I would push them to go out. And I think generally that worked well. In my personal estimation, Adia's private equity professionals were quite well rated among their peers. Not always, but most of the time. And of course, I had difficulty with people who would, I would say, let themselves go to natural, relaxed lives. But generally, as a group, they functioned very well. So yes, this was a great moment. Building the team was one. Educating the team was a second. And creating also the processes. And private equity requires processes. Let's walk through how you would go about sourcing managers and some of your evaluational lenses. What do you look for? It's an evolutionary process. 
if you think about the beginning of the idea program, it was at a time when one talked about private equity as a cottage industry. Managers that had emerged, that would be known, were relatively small in size of assets under management. Whether we talk about Blackstone, TPG, even KKR, they were managing $10, $15 billion maximum across all their funds. Nothing like the 300 or 500 billion of today. The last number I saw was 600 billion for Blackstone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And KKR. So you discovered them when they were emerging managers, essentially. I would say they were past emerging manager state. Mm. But yes, these were the ones that we obviously would include in our lists of managers for a couple of reasons. Number one, for the size of our portfolio present and future, they were the only ones that allowed us to gain meaningful exposure. Putting 5 million in a 100 million fund wouldn't do anything. Putting 40 million into a $500 million fund would be more meaningful. Same thing with a billion dollar fund or $2 billion fund, which was the size of these managers then. So it wasn't too difficult to identify them. The next question is, you've identified who they are. Do you include them in your portfolio? And that's the next big question. And you ask me, what are some of the criteria? One of the criteria I would put high on my list, and I would still put high on my list, is what I would call skin in the game. How much the manager has put of their own wealth. If I know their entire wealth is invested with me as an outside investor into the fund, I know they will take care of my interest as well as their own. So that's an element of comfort factor which I value a lot. A second criteria generally is transparency. I want to know the bad news, if they are bad news. They are always bad news. So you don't want a performance. I see this sometimes with founders where sometimes you'll sugarcoat or not give the full picture. And if everything's on fire, it's best to know that so that we can help. For me, it's the first thing. A good manager is a manager who's clear about failures, difficulty, problems, issues. I want to know them first. I don't care too much about the nice side of success. I want to know the mistakes, what are the difficulties the manager is facing and ultimately I will have to stand by and support. What I call transparency for me is absolutely essential. So skin the game from the manager, transparency. A third factor is what I would call terms flexibility, the commercial terms of the fund. I am sometimes revolted by the aggressiveness of managers in terms of their management fees. Something that doesn't exist in venture capital is portfolio company fees. You don't see that in venture capital, but in buyouts, when a private equity fund takes control of a company, it would often charge fees to the portfolio companies. Fees relating to monitoring, board fees, M&A fees, all sorts of services that are rendered by the fund manager to the portfolio company. And there can be a whole list, usually under the chapter transparency, I want to know all of these fees. That's the first step. I want to be able to say not acceptable because I think that as investor in the portfolio company, I'm the indirect owner of that company. And if that company pays to the manager, number one, I want to know it. Number two, I want to be able to object to it if I think it's unreasonable. So this type of thing is pretty uncommon in venture. I'd say the best firms out there will take on expenses at the management company level to be able to assist 
portfolio companies at no cost to the portfolio company. Yeah, this is a practice. And there are a few buyout firms that would absolutely exclude themselves from portfolio company fees. But some others who have a, an investment banking culture where gaining fees whichever way, they would do that unabashedly. And that is, to me, unacceptable because quite often it goes with the fact that it's almost secret. It's unknown to the normal LP investor. It also could curb growth for the underlying portfolio. Of course. So I'm profoundly revolted by this. When I know the firm do not take portfolio company fees, I feel a little more relieved because we are more aligned. And the fourth thing is what we call true alignment of interests. In other words, the principle that the manager will make money if I'm making money. And when I'm not making money, the manager doesn't make money. This correspondence, this analogy for me is very strong and very important. And last, I think, would be what I would call integrity. And that covers a lot of things, really. When private equity firms were much smaller, there was a kind of almost sacred bond between the general partner and the limited partner. Of course, the general partner would handle many more tasks, which the limited partner, by definition, wouldn't carry out. There is a splitting of responsibilities, but in the end, GP and LPs are partners, and that's the key. And at times, it happened that this sacred bonds is dismissed by the GP, less often by the LP because the LP is a divided world, but the GP may take advantage of this, and that's what I call lack of integrity. What would be some of your best advice for emerging managers? Probably the first order would be to try and be absolutely true to oneself. In other words, not try to impersonate or replicate a model or somebody else's. You're you. You with your foibles, weaknesses, learning experience. And that's what's important. Because ultimately, it is trial and error. But you must be allowed to try and to fail in your investment, provided it's not more than two out of 10. So to be true to oneself, that is the first order, I would say. There is a delicate balance for an emerging manager between being alert to investors' concerns and to mitigate these concerns and to be loyal to oneself too. And probably the answer or the midway is to insist on transparency. And again, transparency for me means giving out the bad news first, because this definitely enhances the trust that an investor places in you. Would you seek people that you had a wavelength match with? Was that part of the decision process at all? Or was it just based on performance and teasing out integrity? Let me dial back a second, because among the criteria, you noted that I didn't talk about performance, because it goes without saying. If the manager doesn't have a sufficiently convincing track record, I'm not sure I would even consider it. So to be on the list, there has to be a track record. Now, the track record itself can oftentimes be misleading. The numbers can be misleading, hugely misleading. And a number of academics have made their reputation around destroying the traditional measures of performance, IR, multiple of money, etc., etc. I wouldn't put undue reliance on these measurements, but they are part of the equation. Obviously, if a manager across multiple funds has provided investors with 5 or 6% in annual return, it's not very compelling. This is not what private equity investors invest for. If, on the other hand, the 
manager has produced volatile results, but between 10 to 20% annual return, they can be part of the list. I never trusted outsized returns. You mentioned 100 times multiple. If somebody is saying 100 times multiple, I would be very wary. I would investigate more rather than less. This exists in venture, but repeatability is the unanswered question. It's a question of repeatability because the task of reviewing an investment firm, validating it from all these criteria that we talked about, is such an enormous job that you don't want to do it if it is just for one fund. You want to be able to be a repeat investor for their benefit, for the benefit of the GP, as well as for your own. The process of re-upping in the next fund shouldn't be automatic. There should always be a validation. And usually you validate at midlife of a fund because you don't get the, the fund totally baked. There still is some indeterminate outcomes. But you want to see the fund tracking. So re-upping is not automatic, but you want to be, if anything, you want to be re-upping more than you want to be turning down. Then there is one other dimension, which I didn't mention, apart from track record and performance. It is a place of a manager and his strategy within the portfolio. Economic cycles being what they are, different strategy perform differently along the cycle. So you don't want to pile in any one particular strategy in the same way as you don't want to pile in any one vintage year. You want to keep a pace because it provides you with dollar cost averaging, with a number of other beneficial aspects. Now, that doesn't in itself solve the question of portfolio construction because you want to have a mix of strategies. You want to have a mix of manager styles. For instance, some managers would specialize in buy and build, perhaps. At certain period of their evolution, they would favor buy and builds because that's good if they are especially knowledgeable about a sector or it can be something else. You want to have exposure to various geographies. You want to have exposure to various growth stage. And in the growth stage, you want to be sure you include, for instance, uh, distressed. You want to include debt. You want to include secondary specialists. So you want to have a mix of strategies. I think it's totally important. But when you do that, you often realize you will multiply the number of relationships. Personally, I've always favor more diversification than less. And I had numerous debates because some colleagues in the industry would say too much diversification gives you average performance. Personally, I never understood that reasoning because returns is not linear IR is not linear and distribution of returns, as we discussed, is not a normal Gaussian distribution. If anything, it's a double bail. There were two distribution groupings. That's what I observed. And if you're too focused, if you have fewer than optimal number of relationships, then you may miss the second bell curve, the good one. The big issue in private equity especially is you don't know how the next fund will perform. You just don't know. What you're doing by looking at the track record is you're looking at the rear mirror. Now, when you drive a car, looking at the rear mirror doesn't give you a recipe on how to turn at the next turn. So track record gives you a hint of the capabilities of the team if you analyze what they did in depth. Quite often, the level of analytics of track record is too simplified. To get a good understanding, you almost need to be an investor in the fund to understand it fully. Because if you look outside in, it's tough. 
when you are in and you analyze much better. There's a particular LP type that will see 100 managers and place two bets per year, but they'd be looking for larger dollar amounts per commitment as opposed to a larger number of managers, smaller dollar amount per commitment, and then as those grow, then scaling up positions. In your experience, my intimate conviction, supported by findings, analytics of my portfolio performance, shows me a couple of conclusions, actually. Number one, I think I said that the distribution of multiples of funds, meaning what a fund has returned over what we have put in the fund, these multiples follow a multimodal distribution not a unimodal, not a Gaussian distribution. So basically, you can think of it as a camelback to maximums. If you're less than optimally diversified, you run the risk of letting the rightmost side of the distribution with the highest multiple away. And that's bad. The second conclusion is the more funds you have, and I'm talking funds, not deals, the more funds you have in a portfolio, the higher returns you have almost mechanically, and let me repeat that because it's really important. Imagine you have just one fund in your portfolio. The experience you have is that fund performance, the IR of the fund, and only that IR of the fund. And if you replace that fund by another fund, you will have another IR, higher or less, but you will only have one IR. And if you try multiple examples of five funds, you will see that you will have higher returns than your initial one. And if you have 20 funds, you have still higher returns, weighted average return. So the more funds you have, the more return, but also less risk or volatility of return. So less risk, more return. This is what I call the free lunch. And the reality is very few people do analyze the situation of their portfolio in that light. Hence, to your question, when an investor has a choice of investing a very substantial amount in one or two funds or distributing its chips across multiple funds, the second option is the best in terms of risk return attributes. That investor will get higher return with a lower risk. The added element is because you're present in more funds after the first iteration, which are the good performance. If you only are in two funds, you don't know how the others, which you haven't invested into, have performed. And that places you in a more difficult situation because, remember, the re-upping game is a dangerous one. You don't know how the next fund will do. Absolutely, you don't know. All you have are hints of, of bits of information, hints of information, but you don't have certainty or even appearance of certainty about how the next fund will perform. When you have a set of funds, you're probably better equipped to see who is best at, because you have, again, exposure to many. How many managers would you be deployed into in a calendar year? At Adia, when I left, we had 300 funds and 100 co-investments. Now, the beauty of having 300 funds is that on average over the year, every day, these funds would bring you two new investments per day. And on average, they would also return money on two exits per day. And obviously, you expect at least a double of money Money. It's not the same deals, of course, but you would expect between entry and exit, say a multiple of two. So two outlays and two realizations every day. So it brings you cash flows. When you have a mature portfolio... It's not a liquid 
You're right. It's a it's a cash flow. Yeah. And if you compare that with the realm of listed equities, listed equities only give you when you sell for good, it gives you possibly a capital gain. It gives you dividend in, interim, but it doesn't give you real cash flow. Private equity is all about cash flow. Maybe people don't see it, but I was used, given the size of the portfolio, to see it as constant cash flow. And obviously, if you continue committing, your cash flows will grow and grow. It's pretty unique. And to me, private equity is the only method of truly investing your money. When you invest your wealth in the stock market. It's a stock. You're riding a level up or down. When you are investing in private equity, you are truly investing, meaning investing, waiting, getting money back. You mentioned that during your time at Adia and directly prior to that, venture didn't particularly seem like an interesting asset class. Correct. Yeah, that was essentially vintages from the early 2000s, pre or post bubble burst. And the reason, I mean, for us, the parameters were these. Number one, we probably didn't have enough life and length of presence in the market to be able to sit at the table of the best VC firms. So even though we were cultivating them, we weren't yet offered a place. So we were confronted with the issue of whether to commit to what we knew were not the first class or not commit at all. And second, where we committed, the results weren't brilliant. I remember years where our returns for the VC portfolio hovered around 4 to 5% per annum. This is not where we wanted to be. Clearly. But that was partly due to the fact that venture capital generally was in down years. Lots of firms probably were lost, not knowing where to direct their capital. Uh, you mentioned up valuations. I don't like returns which are not cash returns. In other words, when it is a valuation element that drives returns, I'm often quite prudent. And during the bubble burst, this is what happened right? And this is what happens today. Paper value as opposed to... Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And this paper valuation is inflated by the fact that the rounds are small, but they're grossed up. Somebody invests two or five percent, and that price suddenly gives value to the whole company. And I'm not totally sure this is, this is a reality. This is a mechanical, arithmetic reality, but it's not totally right. I'm not sure somebody who would be offered to buy 100% would pay the price implied by the latest round. There wouldn't be a buyer at that price. And that, to me, is the ultimate test. Is there a buyer at that price? Not at the price of the round, at the price of the amount of the round, but the price of the entire capitalization. I'd say the way companies are valued is expected value. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Now, there is another factor at work, what we live through now, which is a fact that the money in circulation has increased multiple factors over the last, and essentially since the financial crisis. During the financial crisis, I think the central bank balance sheets of Asia, China, Japan, Europe, and U.S., had tripled, if not more. Then there was COVID, and we've seen another tripling of the balance sheets of the central bank. And balance sheet of the central bank is really the money supply. So basically, what has occurred is the money supplies has increased. Now, I'm not a monetarist, but 
I understand a few facts, which is where is the money going? It's not going into safes. It's going into purchasing assets, real estate assets, financial assets. And the easier types of assets to be bought into are stock market. So basically, in my interpretation, this money has fueled stock appreciation, stock prices. I see it as the real rate of inflation. In some ways it is. It's not even that there's true asset appreciation. It's mm -hmm. just there's more dollars to go around. True, true. I mean, this is personally my interpretation. And as a result, I'm wary of valuations today. Now, it doesn't mean that valuation will go down immediately or even in the near future. I'm saying I'm wary about these valuations. Would I pay such a price? Probably not. And of course, venture capital valuation, round valuations are based on this. So yes, it's expected valuations, but my God, we are essentially in fragile territory here. Where do you see the future of venture capital as opposed to private equity? Do you think the next decade will be defined by greater prevalence of one or the other? Personally, I believe that private equity is definitely here to stay and it has only dented the depths of reality. Venture capital is slightly different. It feeds on technological progress and prowess. And I have the impression that I am witnessing an acceleration of innovation. I mean, for instance, I'm not a scientist, and in that sense, I can't judge, but I can see that the progress of artificial intelligence is absolutely impressive, that big data and the exploitation of big data has made major strides. I see some technologies are at work, including quantum computing. I see progress in the uh, biotech field, and that progress is really, um, in my view... There's, a, there's certainly a rate increase. Yeah, it accelerates. And just to marshal this progress, one will need more, more innovative companies and more capital to follow on this. And this will only increase. So while a decade or two ago, venture capital was a fragment of the total private equity liquid asset world, I wouldn't be surprised it was close to 20% or 25% of the total amounts put to work. And I can't exclude that in a couple of decades, it will be close to 50% because we need technological progress, we need technological innovation, we need technological implementation, and this will only come through young companies that will cultivate those innovations. We all know that it can't be left in the hands of very large companies. Right. R&D departments have shrunk significantly. Naturally. There's nothing compared to what they used to be. And it, it tends to be a bit more profitable to sit there with capital and acquire innovation as opposed to develop yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I believe we're at the eve of a period where, as you said, the aggregation of new technologies in large companies will come through acquisition of smaller companies that have been successful at developing and implementing new technologies. And again, that rate will increase. There will be more of this. There will be more capital needed. There will be more opportunities for gaining from those. For me, the wealth accretion that will arouse out of this is purely gigantic. That will benefit to all. And by the way, our retirees will ultimately benefit from this for a larger pool of, of capital. And we need this because venture capital, private equity contributes to the well-being of the world. We, we can't live on uh, 1% to 2% yield from fixed income. I do not announce the demise of fixed income investing, but frankly, this is for the old days.
for the past old days. This right. is not for the coming <laughs> period. Maybe you could tell us a bit about the 2008 financial crisis and what that was like being at the helm of a significant portion of the world's capital asset. Interestingly enough, I did not mentally dismiss the existence of a crisis. There was a crisis, no question. But in retrospect, the damage done to private equity because of the financial crisis was almost nothing. What occurred, though, is governmental legislative onslaught on asset classes which were not essentially responsible for the crisis, but were, in a sense, so close or neighboring the financial crisis, that fear took power and lots of legislation and compliance rules went into private equity. Was that a net gain, the regulation? There probably is a gain in the sense that increased and enhanced regulation made certain types of investors more comfortable with investing because they felt that private equity was under surveillance and monitoring more than it was before. So it gave rise to a growth of interest in investing in private equity. That's the positive side. I can only concede that. Was that increased regulation so warranted? Did did in itself increased regulation improve the behavior of market participants? I am not that sure. One thing that it did, though, the weight of regulation allowed the larger and more powerful players existing at that time to grow faster. Would I call this a positive development? Frankly, I'm the question is open. I'm happy that there are some giant players. Some of them, by the way, were funded by us and a few other like-minded investors. And I'm happy that they grew at this pace. But that made them giants catering to multiple masters. In my view, a listed private equity firm serves two masters, the public market investor in their stock, as well as the LPs investing directly in their funds. Could there be conflict of interest? Would you favor public market investors investing in your stock as opposed to investors in your fund? It could be argued that the choice existing managers do choose. Personally, I'm still very attached to the fact that private equity should be entrepreneurial. And yes, it's true that very successful enterprises get their reward from being listed. It's a sign of success and health. But again, I'm frustrated by the fact that there is this double accountability. Personally, I would always prefer to commit to a firm which is still privately owned by the founder as opposed to being listed. From an incentive alignment perspective, that seems to make the most sense. Yes. On the other hand, it's true also that the manager being at a large listed company, an investor who has few tools to hang his hat on would be perfect content. (laughs) How many of the systems and culture that you instilled in Adia do you think is still there today? Ah, I'm afraid not much. First of all, some of the most talented people from my team who were worthy of government posts, because I could have an influence on their career path but up to a limit only because there were Emiratis. So some of them decided to leave Adia to join other posts and they did extremely well. And I have such one friend and he recently told me now I've got enough of government postings, I'm going into the private sector, finally. Others, even though they were young when they joined the team, are now on retirement schedule. So they are leaving. And yes, indeed, part of this culture of excellence, of this strife 
for progress and excellence. In a sense, this has disappeared a bit. I don't know about performance. I understand that there are questions. Probably one of the most important elements is that during my time at Adia, I was against direct investments, meaning investment proposals that were not suggested by our GPs, mm -hmm. which co-investment is a separate thing. And they generally have their own set of issues. No, I'm talking about direct investment. And I always thought a direct investment for an institution, particularly a government institution, is not a good idea for many reasons. Some are of the order of reputational risks. Some are of the orders of what happens when it is a bad investment or when you need to appoint people to specially monitor who are you appointing, what duties do they have from your perspective. So direct investments bear a whole lot of own issues which I never felt really belong to portfolio investments or financial investments. And even though there is a kind of attempt to learn first from fund investment, then from co-invest on how to do possibly one day direct investment. Overall, I think it's a bad idea. Now, I've read some recent statistics that say, oh, the direct investment subset have done extremely well for some investors recently. And my guess is there were probably more momentum type investments rather than well thought. I'm guessing it's probably growth rounds in tech companies, right? At, at which point, maybe direct is the way to go. There's a certain stage of growth for a company where, yes, they're still private, but this is what public market investing used to look like. The multiples, revenue, the decision points can be somewhat formulaic, mm -hmm. right? But direct investment is done in public markets almost by definition. What you do when you pick a stock, you do a direct investment. But that's fine because you have liquidity. You don't like the performance of the stock, you vote with your feet, you, you, you sell. In a private equity context, yes, you may benefit from upward valuation. What happens when there is a down round? And there were years where it was shown that direct investment as a subset were not performing as well as fund investments. When you have a manager taking care of all the issues, you're fine. You're allocating capital. You're not picking a company. But when you pick a company, then you're front and center exposed. In any case, at Adia, you asked me about the philosophy. Uh, there has been more recently a, a definite attempt to go direct. I think with the maturity of Adia, it's probably a natural thing. This plays into something you told me before. The world is private. It's probably less true now. <laughs> the whole world wants to be exposed to private assets. When you aggregate assets which are in the hands of private persons, of governments, of various types of entities, of local authorities, listed assets just don't compare. The world is private. Plus, if you take into account certain assets which haven't been the subject of interest by investors, take, for instance, intellectual property rights or ownership of waves, or there can be many other things that one day can be the topic of investing, licenses, royalties, all of a sudden these private assets become part of the investable uh, portion. So, yeah, the world is private. Where do you see the world of private capital in fixing the world's problems that we face today. And where does the responsibility go beyond preservation 
or appreciation. ESG concerns have almost taken the world of investment by storm. It was always my impression that in private equity, because there are so many risks that you have to take care of, that ESG concerns, even though they were not put ahead or outlined or emphasized, they were always present. You can't risk an environmental damage. You can't risk absence of sustainability. You can't risk bad governance. So almost by definition, private equity is all about ESG and has been almost from the beginning. ESG in public listed companies is something different. You need to have that. Insistence on the ESG for private equity probably is less stringent or less needed because it's, in my view, it's always has been. For the simple reason that private equity is all about the human factor. You rely on founders, but in other areas of private equity, you rely on a management team. You rely on the management team's integrity, transparency, hard labor, incentivization, and as an investor, the people. You interact with them. When you invest in public equities, yeah, you may have heard about Steve Jobs. You've heard of him, but you don't know him. When you invest in private equity, venture or buyout, the manager. Not only do you know the manager, and you look for alignment of interest between the workforce and the right treatment of the workforce by the management team. It's like alignment of planets. So the human factor being so prevalent, so important in private equity makes it that you don't solve the world's problem but you come pretty close to it. Now, a well-managed firm, a firm that has a good strategy and whose strategy succeeds, I would argue that it's good for the world. I'll challenge you a bit here. So I'm not sure that capital appreciation and fixing our most pressing issues are the same thing. Okay, you're right. It is not the same thing. It's absolutely not the same thing. But you will certainly agree with the fact that if the pie gets larger for salaries compensation, tradable goods, availability. Look what internet availability has made to the world. It has made life easier for millions and millions of people. Life is easier as a result of this. Now, has it produced other negative uh, side effects? Yeah, probably it has. But I think technology can solve technology prop technological problems as well. There's always a response in a sense. So it's not strict to sense to put capital appreciation. It's the pie growing. Some people say, oh yes, but growth is killing nature, provoking climate change. It's true, but if we didn't have new technologies leading us to a greener world, <laughs> where would we be? So I'm an optimist in this. I think progress is good. And while private equity's mandate and mission is not to save the world, it sometimes can contribute efficiently and positively to the state of the world. For instance, take one factor. Africa was always the forgotten region of the world. And you may remember that hunger and health issues affected that continent. Still true, but to a much lesser degree, as a result of economic development. And mind you, economic development was not the result of government policies. It was far more the result of private investing. So at least in the United States, there's among many capital providers, a fear of the new. This probably expands beyond the world of capital. But if I could use an analogy, keeping the airplane in autopilot, as opposed to focusing on the R&D and actually creating new things in the world. Mm -hmm. Fully agree on that. Look, our future lies with 
better technology to address our problems, whatever the problems are, whether it is health, whether it is a happy life, whether it is the right mindset. It's very much about technology as it eliminates issues. I can only think about human history as a permanent conquest of technology against the worst that can happen to our health, to the dangers that haunt us since immemorial times. Now, the fear that you mentioned, there is a fear, the man in the cave watching, listening to every noise because there may be some hostile animal out there threatening his life of family's life. And this alertness has not left us. But I think mistrust of technology is a kind of misplaced, misguided Certainly. fear. I, I think it's our it's our only chance to fix quite a few problems that we have. And people have been ringing the alarm bells over climate change, plastics in the water, these types of things for decades. And it's only now becoming very visible that we're getting considerably more investment to fix it. Mm -hmm. But it maybe that's what it will take is increased visibility for that level of focus. Look, the media have made it a success to try and raise the level of fears of people, right? So uh, you have fears about a giant asteroid hitting the earth or about other types of catastrophe of a natural origin. And that might still happen, right? Or there can be an earthquake, a big earthquake <laughs> in the Pacific coast. But I do think that technology will gradually provide some tools, some early warning systems like we did for the tsunami in the Pacific, right? Provide those tools from a health standpoint. I mean, you're very interested in this. The pandemic standpoint, because this is still hurting us and will haunt us for decades to come. Natural disasters. But in the end, we'll be fine. Believe me. Yeah, well, this has been fantastic. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Sean.